Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll bring you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24. This week, Monaco's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, recaps what we know now that we didn't seven days ago. We learned this week that the sinister deep state, which furtively manipulates human destiny for its own nefarious ends, plans to infuse the sinister serum they market as a COVID-19 vaccine into salad dressing. So there was that. Plus, we head to Lisbon for a recipe from the team at Zoom Zoom Gastro Bar. So this is better enjoyed in the summertime. It's a cold starter, so it's very refreshing. Very nice to enjoy in the summer months, and it will remind you of eating clams by the beach. All that and much, much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We begin this week's show with a big-name interview. For the latest episode of The Chiefs, Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, was joined by the Estonian Prime Minister, Kaja Kallas, to discuss leading in times of crisis and the future of Estonia and its national identity. Here is part of their conversation. Let's just pretend for a moment I work with a big Korean multinational. I'm interested in maybe investing in Estonia, I could go down the street to Poland. I might want to go somewhere sunnier in Europe like Portugal. What's the prime minister's elevator pitch for Estonia at the moment? When we think about both economic affairs, social affairs, when you're looking for inward investment and also just to, to position and pitch the country right now. Well, uh, we are the most tech-savvy country in Europe and uh, we have the most effective uh, tax system. So it is a very simple tax system with a few exemptions and, and this has invited a lot of investments to Estonia. And not to mention that uh, we have the digital governance which makes uh, establishing a company, uh, investing into the company, developing a company and your business uh, so much easier than anywhere in the world. I would then ask if we were having this elevator discussion. It's a small country and of course there is an enormous talent competition all over Europe. How do you present yourselves? When we see Estonians moving abroad, some are coming back of course as well, but how do you see this talent competition at the moment? The talent pool is, is looking looking good. <laughs> First of all, um, there are more people coming and moving to Estonia than moving away from Estonia, which always, I don't remember who, who said, this shows the quality of the country when more people <laughs> wanting to get in than to get out. This is positive. But uh, because we are a small country, then uh, we have... Our obligation is to learn languages and speak the languages. And what is also positive here is that we are quite flexible in terms of uh, approaching different uh, economic policies. But talents are attracted by this um, flexibility on one side, but also this kind of modern approach to governance and and to way of doing things. I think we are quite open in 
looking at the out-of-box solutions, we are quite open to implementing those solutions as well. Sometimes it is said that when you have a good idea, then you know Estonia is a small country where you can actually test your new uh, new ideas because you know you can also try things and then uh, you know say that if they don't work then we don't continue with them so there is this um, courage to to try new things i think this is uh, also something that uh, not many countries have because uh, it is very much i'm coming from the private sector myself and and i see that very often the argument is that you know we can't do this because we have always done the things the way we have done those things we are a young country in terms of uh, of regaining our independence so it's 30 years anniversary this year and therefore we try to build upon the strengths that our country has in order to be number one in, in the world in digital governance, for example. When you look at sectors in this country and, and where you can excel, and of course we've seen a number of extraordinary success stories, many in, in a digital space, is it only about a, a tech and digital future for this country or is Estonia still a place that you'll make things beyond just copyright agreements and uh, beyond LOIs, but actually physically making manufacturing? Is this still an important part of the story or do you see this as something which is, yeah, it's, it's part of another Europe or it's part of something beyond these borders uh, when you think of the future of this country? As we don't have many people, so uh, this is uh, never our strength. So we have to focus on the on the quality or, or the things that we do. So if we want to be developed in the world, then services are definitely uh, something where we can grow. But um, when we talk about climate policies and then this kind of green transition, being small and flexible is also an advantage there because our companies can be the ones that uh, test uh, new solutions and can be the front runners for that uh, types of uh, those types of ideas as well. So I think not being stuck uh, only in the in the digital uh, part of the economy, but also finding uh, new ways that uh, we can be uh, leaders uh, regarding the green transition. So we have our challenges when we talk about uh, our eastern part of Estonia, for example, uh, where we have uh, the oil shale mines and, and we, uh, we have to do the green transition there. But, but we can also be turn it into our advantage. So, so if we have to do this, the, the way we do this uh, can be a good example for, for some other countries as well. And it's not uh, easy, of course. Trying to bring the private companies on board uh, is uh, very important. It's difficult to bring many people on board today, as, as we know. And when you yes, but but don't you find it interesting that uh, it is difficult? At the same time, we see what is happening uh, with the huge uh, wildfires. We see uh, the floods. These are all the direct results of the warming of the climate. So it is a clear call of action, and sometimes there is this discussion that let others do it. But I think every single country and every single person plays a role in this bigger picture. 
That was Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kalas in conversation with Monocle's editorial director Tyler Brulé for the latest episode of The Chiefs, which you can hear the full interview and the previous guests as well on monocle.com radio. And this week, Monocle celebrated the launch of our latest spring title, the Monocle Book of Entrepreneurs. For a peek behind the cover, host of the Entrepreneurs, Daniel Bage, spoke to the book's editors, Joe Picard and Chiara Rimella. Here is a highlight. Tell me about the approach that you took and where you got your inspiration from. Obviously, we've done a lot of books here, but what did you want to do differently? And, and sort of what did you look at in thinking about making a book about business? Well, I think there are a lot of business books out there and we wanted to really bring the monocle approach to making your own business. We wanted to make a book that, first of all, is is beautiful, is an object that people want to own, but is also helpful, instructional, like Kiara said. It's our own take on starting your own business. So the first thing we sort of did was think about how we could structure the book. So the book is structured in three main parts. As Kiara mentioned, the first part is called Us the Experts, where mm. we brought together more than 60 voices from all different types of businesses to talk about their experiences, everything from starting out the first steps to how you find funding, what you need to know about branding, how a business can build a community, how you approach digital, and a little bit about kind of how you can turn around an existing business, how you refresh something that's maybe been going for a few years, but uh, you want to, you kind of want to do something new with it. So that's the first section. The second section is called Find Your Patch. And in that chapter, we kind of think about where you might want to start out your business. So, you know, there'll be a few well-known cities in there. We've got Amsterdam, Adelaide, and a few more perhaps surprising choices, Tangier in Morocco and uh, Portuguese surf town. The point being that you don't necessarily need to be in a major business hub for your business to be successful. You kind of need to think about who you are, what your business is, and what community you're trying to reach. And then the third chapter is, you know, it's a huge bank of success stories, basically, a hundred success stories. We look at everything from furniture design, publishing, media brands, fashion brands, food and drink businesses, hospitality service, and the hard thing about this was kind of narrowing it down. You know, Monocle's been telling business stories for the last 15 years. And normally when we sit down to make these books, we kind of look at our archives and we think, right, which stories do we want to tell in this book? You know, drawing on old voices and new voices. And we started just looking at the business chapter, but then we realized actually every section of the magazine has stories of interest that were mm. relevant to this book. So we were looking through design stories and architecture stories and food, hospitality. We found this huge wealth of stories that kind of made sense to tell in this book so we started with a huge long list narrowed it down narrowed it down again and then obviously reached out to all the brands that that were featured and we've done a, a sort of mini Q&A with every brand that's in this hundred success stories chapter and asked them sort of some key questions about their story and about their process. Super interesting. And there is so much in there for people to take inspiration from, I think, which we started talking about, Kiara. As Joe said, there are some practical tips for people there, but we've done that sort of in the monocle way. Talk to me about how we present that visually. I was really struck by this book because obviously it has a feel that people will be familiar with, our loyal readers where we've got all these bespoke illustrations, but there's just an incredible amount of photography as well. As Joe said, we wanted to create a beautiful book. So how did you go about actually presenting that with these three different chapters and an incredible amount of content? 
Yeah, I have to really commend Joe and his colleague Molly for really shepherding this enormous amount of copy uh, through the ranks because I think that as far as our books go, this is really the most packed. You know, a lot of the books that we make are very beautiful and I've had the pleasure to work with Joe on the Monocle Book of Italy, which is a little bit more kind of lush and, and inspirational. And there is that side of it in this book, you know, in the Find Your Patch section, as Joe was saying, you know, that's where we aim to kind of lure you in and I guess help you try to picture your life in some of these places and maybe you know what London looks like but do you know what Guitari in France looks like maybe not and you just see that kind of reportage style photography that you're used to from the pages of Monocle but then in the Ask the Experts section you know some of this stuff is is difficult because I personally freak out just thinking about you know launching a business and how to finance it and how to get investment like that thing already gives me palpitations and so it's not about kind of dumbing it down but it's about making it accessible and mm. that goes through the language that you use which kind of Joe and Molly truly kind of made as accessible as possible to people but also through the illustrations because starting a business is a serious thing but it's also supposed to be fun yeah. you know it is supposed to be your life and it needs to be enjoyable and so I guess we tried to convey that even when you're talking about data aggregators <laughs> you know we tried to kind of squeeze out some fun out of that and then I guess in the, in the end in the case studies. As Joe said, these come from all over the magazine, from years and years and years of archive. But I think what you see in this bank of images is kind of something that reminds me of a feature that we did do for the Entrepreneur's Magazine, which is a feature called This Is What Success Looks Like. And that's, I think, the crux of this chapter, right? Because success doesn't just look like you in a sleek office, just looking very serious in the distance. These are people who are like warm, welcoming, smiling, like success is you being happy. And yes, some businesses in this incredible bank of stories have like truly incredible turnovers. Like all of us were shocked learning how certain businesses that seem slightly niche perhaps have actually millions and millions worth of turnover so that I was a really mm. like learning experience for us as well but it wasn't necessarily the businesses that were making the most money that looked the happiest <laughs> you know all of them I think we chose people who are happy and smiling and you know fairly content with their life but it's interesting how you see someone who runs a fairly small business but doing something for their community connecting with their neighbors and they look successful they are successful that was Monaco's Chiara Di Mella and Joe Picard speaking to Daniel Bates for this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs This week, Monaco also celebrated our Quality of Life conference in Athens. One highlight from the event was Tyler Brulé being joined on stage by the editor of the Sunday Times, Emma Tucker, to discuss the future of media. Let's have a listen. It's fantastic having Emma Tucker here because uh, she once had um, maybe the not-so-fun task of being my editor in a former life at a, a pinkish newspaper I once did. upon a time. It was an interesting job. He always filed late, literally every week. He always had a good excuse, on a plane, lost somewhere. But the interesting thing is I, I commissioned him a couple of weeks ago thinking maybe things had changed. Turns out they haven't. Even when you're grounded and there's no, no flights, you still can't <laughs> file on time. We have tons to, uh, to really go through because it's just such an extraordinary time. But I want to just rewind Emma a little bit. You get this gig, the interview process. Uh, here you land uh, at the Sunday Times uh, to the top chair. Maybe just... 
tell everyone? Because, of course, you know, some people are not getting either the digital edition or the print edition. What newspaper did you inherit? Maybe just take us back to that moment. I th well, this, the Sunday Times occupies a very special position in sort of British media landscape and also in the, the culture of Sundays in Britain. So it's a, it's a very big beast. It's got this tremendous reputation. Uh, it used to have a slogan that was, the Sunday Times is the Sunday Papers, and it still very much thinks of itself in that way. So I was following in the footsteps of some very big names, former editors, Harold Evans, Andrew Neal, and I think the newspaper establishment feels very proprietorial towards the Sunday Times. It's famous not just in the UK, but abroad for having broken some really big stories. Uh, the FIFA files was a Sunday Times exclusive. Back in the day, they broke the story of the thalidomide scandal. So it's got this tremendous reputation. And when I took it on, in, with some trepidation, <laughs> I basically confronted a paper that was very living off this reputation, but was almost entirely print-focused. And I think, to some extent, its reputation had allowed it to get away with that. So I quickly surmised that um, we needed to switch that focus, because for all that people still enjoy a Sunday print newspaper, um, I think you only need to look around you to see that that's not where the future lies. So you're talking about a transformation. Obviously, it existed um, as digital. But, but what did you want to do? Because there is something interesting. If you're a subscriber to, let's say, the overall Times brand as well, it's not also in this ticker world as well. There, it really sort of chooses its moments. It's not just breaking news willy-nilly. So, you know, and I think that's fascinating because somehow it has that presence of print without the sort of weird, you know, addictive nature where we know many news sites, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of dormant for a long time. But they're just trying to push a lot of crap out there the whole time. So how much was that part of a, of a strategy also from a woman who, of course, really started in print, has inky fingers some days. Tyler, if only you knew what you had, what, the, the, this is the answer I could give to that question, because you've really hit on a philosophical challenge that is affecting all titles, but also internally for us. So when we relaunched our digital edition, originally we put up, we were one of the first newspapers to put up a paywall, and um, at when we did that, we realized we had to uh, adapt the product. We had to give people something that they were willing to pay for, given that there was a lot else out there that was free. And when we spoke to readers, what we discovered was what you just described. They don't want to be overwhelmed by endless, small updates to stories. Not least because, as I said before, you can get that for free anywhere. So we came up with this idea of digital editions. So we'd have the morning edition, a midday update, and then a five o'clock update. And uh, our readers quickly got used to this. You could watch the traffic trends and you could see that they would come in and read stories in a, rather like we, I guess we used to read newspapers. But at the moment, there's a, there's a bit of a, a tussle going on internally. <laughs> I can <laughs> which, imagine yeah, some. <laughs> which, I needn't go into uh, necessarily about whether we should be doing more of the breaking news because newspaper, uh, journalists hate the idea of being last. And journalists think that they make the big mistake of thinking that readers are like them, and they're not. Readers, by and large, are like, you know, they're people with other things to do in their lives. They're not glued to the news the whole time. 
It's a slightly different challenge for me because obviously on a Sunday, there's not so much news. We've had quite a lot recently. A lot of people have died on Saturdays, which makes for interesting, interesting times. But um, by and large, it's not the same challenge. So we can focus much more on high-quality, distinctive, exclusive stories. Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, in conversation with the editor of the Sunday Times, Emma Tucker, at our Quality of Life conference in Athens. And talking of iconic titles, for the last weekend's edition of The Stack, I spoke with the editor-in-chief of Thrasher magazine, the well-known skateboarder's bible founded in the early 80s. Michael Burnett was always interested in the world of skateboarding and says the magazine is for all those interested in the sport, not only the experts. Good to know. He told me more about his experience with the title. I got into skating because I saw Back to the Future. The movie with uh, Michael J. Fox gets pulled behind a car on a skateboard. And that was the first time I'd seen like tricks and I'd seen like the wide boards. So that captured my imagination as a kid. As I got older, I, I never grew out of it. I got more and more interested. So I saw Thrasher for the first time in maybe 1987. I saw him at the time before the internet, it was like, there wasn't a lot of information, especially I grew up in Texas which is not like, it's a, not a very progressive state. You know, it's a pretty conservative place. So to find a magazine with pictures and stories was a, a huge, huge eye-opening experience for me as a kid. So yeah, that was kind of the start. Amazing. And, and you basically started your career as a, as a photographer. You used to take pictures of skaters there as well. And I think that's how perhaps the magazine paid attention to your work. And, you know, and, and here you go. Yeah, well, sort of. I made what's called a zine, which is like a fanzine. It's like a homemade magazine. There's still lots of people doing this today, but especially pre-internet, this was the way you got the word out. So I was at university in Colorado at the time. So I just made my own little zine and I would mail it to everybody, all the skaters, all the skate companies I knew of. So from the beginning, I liked the whole process. I liked the design. I liked writing. I liked photography. So I had a few things run in the magazine while I was still in school. And then when I graduated, I was like, hey, can I have a job? Can I have a job? Can I have a job? And Jake Phelps, the editor, finally said if I moved to Southern California, they would give me a small retainer every month. So that's how I started. But I always liked everything, not just the photography. And I'm still a photographer. I still shoot photos for the magazine. And tell us about the importance of the print titles. Because, of course, Treasure, you know, I had a look. I mean, you have quite a big online presence as well. But, you know, of course, the iconic print title is still there, still looking beautiful. I love the covers, by the way. I mean, I, I think they're fantastic. But tell us about the importance of the print title. It's kind of the backbone of the operation because, you know, we're this brand that's been around since 1981. So it's like the magazine is like the heart of the operation. You know, we're going to always make that magazine. It's like something you can hold in your hand. You can tear the picture out. You can put it on your wall. It's just that kind of experience. That said, we're not afraid of the new technology, you know, like obviously we go crazy with video, we go crazy with YouTube, we go crazy with social media. It doesn't really matter to me. Like I'm not like one's better than the other. It's more like being excited about skating, being excited about the imagery and the stories we want to tell and the skaters we know and just being a part of it. So whenever the tool is, Thrasher will make it part of what we do because we're 
we're stoked about skating. But the magazine, yeah, you know, it's a different experience. You sit down with it. It's a more intimate experience. It's a slower experience, but it's also just so tangible. And I think for people who appreciate that, it's very affordable. I would like to know as well, give us a little update about the latest issue. I think I saw the cover for the October issue on, on Instagram. And if you could just tell us a bit some of the highlights. I love the covers as well. I don't know who's your design team, but it, it's impressive. Our design team, it's Adam Cregan and Cameron Padgett. They're two guys. They're really cool. Yeah. No, they do a fantastic job. I don't know. I mean, that issue in general, it's, it's exciting because we have Breezy on the cover. This is our fifth woman to appear on a Thrasher cover. And right now, they're a very exciting generation of women skaters, which is super duper cool. It's my mission to get the best and coolest of them involved in what we do. When I was a kid, I never saw a woman on a skateboard or a girl on a skateboard ever. And then in the 90s, I saw three, you know, and I'd featured them in the magazine. So this is really, really cool. So Brianna Gearing's on the cover, doing a really cool trick. She's got a cool outfit on right there. I don't know, like philosophically, design-wise, we've got certain departments. We've got certain things that are consistent and other things that are more freestyle. In general, as the last print magazine, my mission has changed a little bit. I'm not as concerned with progression because it was a space race, the skate tricks for so long. And now it seems like it's more of a renaissance time. And some, you've probably seen this, some kids want to dress up like it's 1991. Some kids want to dress up like it's 1981. And it's like people are integrating all the different styles of skating. They can skate a ramp, they can skate a pool, they can skate a handrail. So I try to represent that. I try to show that. I try to tell now that skating is multi-generational, I try to tell bigger stories. So there's simple stories, but I did an article last month that was skaters with jobs. And I interviewed a Washington lobbyist, a brain surgeon, a scientist, you know, all these different career people that love skating, excellent skaters, but who have different careers. To me, that's interesting. Thrasher shouldn't be a fanzine for the pros. It's not supposed to be People Magazine for pro skaters because skating is bigger than that. And you can be terrible at skating and you're still a skater and you're still part of the team, part of the crew. That was Michael Burnett, the editor-in-chief of Thrasher Magazine, speaking to me for last weekend's edition of The Stack. From skateboarding Southern California to the highs and lows of New York City for our next highlight. As it's time for the latest weekly installment of our letter from New York from our correspondent Henry Rich Sheridan, except this time he's not actually in New York at all and has made his way to our studios here in London. Henry sat down for a chat about what makes New York great and not so great with our very own Tom Edwards. Take it away, Tom. So you've been doing these missives from New York for quite some time. You've been in the city, what, about three years? In New York. I've been in New York for three years, in America for three years, unbroken, yes. Now, what's interesting, for more than half of that time, the city and the whole country, like the rest of the world, has been in the grip of the pandemic. And my question to you, an opening gambit, is do you have a sense of how, even just in that short time there, the pandemic has changed New York City? Can you already see some things 
won't go back to being the way they were. Midtown New York is probably one of the regions out of all of the USA that's been affected most by the coronavirus. And that's because it is built around essentially offices and hotels, both of which have emptied out substantially over the course of the coronavirus. And, you know, its entire economy, all of its restaurants, all of its little cafes, its whole functioning is contingent on this extraordinary density of people. Not only is it full of offices and hotels, but those offices and hotels are multiple stories higher than, you know, is typical in a European city, for example, right? So you you have a huge drain of population density in an extremely concentrated region, which is throwing up unprecedented challenges for the owners of the building for the owners of storefronts that serve the people who normally work in these buildings. And the city is going to have to come up with some kind of plan to reinvigorate this area. You know, there's been a lot of debate, and I'm sure in these studios you've had a lot of debate, about the extent to which companies are going to return to full-time work versus maintaining a degree of kind of work from home. You know, again, the physical infrastructure and the economic infrastructure of, of, of Midtown, well, Manhattan in general, but Midtown in particular is completely predicated and has evolved around enormous influxes of people every single day. That may not be the case again, ever. And I think that's going to be probably the biggest challenge that New York faces as a kind of economic powerhouse recovering from this pandemic. Let me ask you a little bit about, well, a personal take, if you will. You've now been back in the UK, your old, well, your motherland, your old stomping ground for a short time. Has that given you a different perspective on New York? Because you've been, you haven't been back throughout this period. And I wonder, do you think that the twin experiences of having been in New York during this turbulent period and also now having got, you know, a, a couple of weeks, a snapshot from without, does that change what your expectations are if you look to the future or ambitions, personal, professional, whatever, in terms of how you want to experience the city, engage with the city, or things you want to see happening there? Are they tied to the political agenda? Are they tied to, well, hopefully the fine dining scene, I imagine? I always find it interesting when people relocate and then step out of the fray for a moment. If they get, I don't know, is it clarity? Is it nostalgia? What's the last couple of weeks? Has it given you a different insight? Yeah, I think that, I think that you know, it's thrown into relief the differences between New York and London, which is the city that I spent time in, but also cities that I feel London is more representative of, right? Like, I do think that New York is in a kind of in a class of its own among at least Western cities in terms of its, you know, I keep saying this word, but just the density of it, the sheer density of it, the kind of like monumental architecture and the the thousands and thousands of people that, that those buildings contain in such a confined space. The geography of the city I love. I love the fact that it looks like it's being kind of designed as a kind of weird computer level. That You know, there's a real sense of... When you're going between the boroughs, you're almost always crossing a bridge or going under a tunnel or passing some kind of signpost that kind of uh, starts a new chapter in your mind, in your consciousness, in a way that when you're kind of crawling through London sprawl, you don't have that clearly demarcated sense of movement through geographically distinct spaces. And so just kind of appreciating, I think, the like geological and geographical features and the architectural features that make the... Uh, the city unique and which trying to figure out the causal connections between those factors and then the cultural things you encounter right i i find that really interesting like you know it's this it's this europe's human capital its talent is dispersed over the capitals of many different countries i think new york is like the de facto 
capital of America, and it absorbs such a wild proportion of that vast continental country's kind of talent and ambitious people that I just it has a febrile and immensely stressful, but also enormously exciting quality that it is difficult to find elsewhere. And I'm, I resent and am tired of people banging on and on about how special New York is. I think its self-mythologization is incredibly myopic and immature, but there is something to it. There is something to the myth of New York and its exceptional status as a city. And I think that uh, no matter how much longer I spend there, I'm going to try to continue to come to an appreciation of, of what makes it so insane and brilliant and generate so much of what the whole world appreciates in terms of art, culture, dining. You know, you can't contest that legacy. Monaco's correspondent Henry Richardson in conversation with Tom Edwards for Thursday's edition of The Daily. And it was lovely to see Henry in the office again as well. Still to come here on The Curator, Andrew Muller recaps what we know now that we didn't seven days ago. We look ahead to the federal election in Germany this weekend and ask what it could mean for the country. And of course, we stop off in Lisbon for a favorite recipe. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Next up, Monaco's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, tells us about how the past seven days have enlightened the sum of human knowledge. Here is Andrew with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week that the sinister deep state, which furtively manipulates human destiny for its own nefarious ends, plans to infuse the sinister serum they market as a COVID-19 vaccine into salad dressing. So there was that. Let's have a chorus of everyone agreeing that this sounds both normal and plausible. Oh, yeah, it's the Quality of Life conference. This weekend, so everyone's in Athens. Also... I just can't be bothered. Great work, team. We learned the salad dressing thing from no less a source than American Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, former director of the US Defense Intelligence Agency and National Security Advisor, now apparently an ambassador at large for QAnon, who spends his days barking at podcasts for weirdos, which is a reassuring career path. It real. I mean, I, I got to put... You know, somebody sent me a thing this morning where they're talking about putting the vaccine into salad dressing. We did learn, however, that outlandish though Flynn's claims may seem, they are rigorously sourced and diligently fact-checked. We emphasise, somebody sent me a thing this morning where they're talking about it. For perspective, next time one of Flynn or his ilk tees off about the fake news media, here is the sound of an actual editor responding to a reporter who attempts to fly a kite on a string quite that frayed. That was supposed to be evocative of someone careening headlong down a staircase, boot print in seat of trousers, laptop and notepad flung after them, battered trilby with card reading press tucked into the hatband, wafting mournfully in their wake. 
Our producers always greatly enjoy rising to the challenge of making these directions a reality for the enjoyment of you, the listener. Yep, fine. I've totally got all day for this nonsense. It's not like I've got a billion other things on my plate. That's the spirit. Let's have some wistful music. Because if only there was some way of seamlessly proceeding from a riff about journalists who write meretricious nonsense based on thin or non-existent evidence to an item involving former Daily Telegraph Brussels correspondent Boris Johnson. But there's just nothing, nothing at all to work with here. Or so our lawyer tells us, you can stop soaking everything in paraffin now, Lionel. Bring on the accordions. Before we learned that the United Kingdom as a nation should be grateful at a moment of tumultuous trans-channel brouhaha about submarines or whatever it is this time, that it is led by a skillful and sensitive diplomat who can absolutely be relied on not to make matters worse. I just think it's, it's, it's time for some of our dearest friends around the world to, you know, prone and grip about all this, uh, and don't want and break. That Boris Johnson did not make this statement while wearing a beret, a hooped shirt and draped in onions is an inexcusable dereliction by his staff, for which we hope someone is being appropriately punished. Ah! See, you've got two goes out of it now, Christy. A morning well spent. <laughs> no, honestly, I've got absolutely nothing better to do. We also learn from Boris Johnson's recent diplomatic forays that while there may be audiences receptive to excruciatingly laboured invocations of Sesame Street and The Muppet Show, the United Nations General Assembly is not among them. And when Kermit the Frog, Kermit the Frog, sang, it's not easy being green. Do you remember that one? I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative and it's right to be green. Although he was also unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought, uh, Kermit the Frog. Tough crowd. We know the feeling. Maestro, the national anthem of El Salvador. Isn't that the William Tell Overture? All right, crack on. We learned from El Salvador, which translates as The Salvador, it's not just Boris Johnson who can do this, that their experiment with the world's first hipster president continues to take disconcerting turns. We had already learned early on that 40-year-old Nayib Bukele, for it is he, appeared determined to conform to every sour caricature of the unjustifiably self-pleased millennial. Mannered beard, baseball cap on backwards, has probably at least thought about a man bun and sleeve tattoos, may well grind own coffee. We need some generic hipster music. What do generic hipsters listen to? Christ, what a din. We subsequently learned that Bukele was hell-bent on pursuing the shtick to the point of absurdity, adopting 21st century magic beans bitcoin as legal tender for El Salvador, which certainly seems very much like something which could not 
possibly go wrong. We have now learned that Bukele, who already had considerable form for tweeting every damn thing that pops into his head, has submitted completely to the embrace of posters disease, which afflicts its victims with a kind of morbid contrarianism. We learn that President Bukele now describes himself as follows, as read by Monocle 24's ironic tyranny desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. El dictador más cool del mundo mundial. Which translates, we learned, roughly as the coolest dictator in the world. <coughs> well, quite. While we, for one sidelong look at the news monologue, would never instruct the voters of El Salvador or anywhere else how to conduct their affairs, we're good like that, we have learned from general observation that there really is only one appropriate response to this sort of grandstanding by a head of state, even, perhaps especially, if made in jest. <coughs> Three goes you've had out of that now. Three. Yeah? You want a fourth? So give you a fourth. Wasting my time like that's how I throw you down the steps. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you, Andrew. You are with The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. This weekend sees Germany's first federal election without Angela Merkel on the ticket in two decades. Postal voting has already been taking place and it is looking like the Social Democratic Party's election to lose. Aside from who wins, the question would be just what kind of coalition government is possible. Monaco's news editor Chris Chermak, who's in Berlin for Monaco this weekend, reviews the final days of the summer campaign. It's been a topsy-turvy race that has seen three different parties claim the lead over the summer months. But just ahead of Sunday's federal election, Olaf Scholz, the mild-mannered candidate for the Social Democrats and current finance minister, looks likely to lead his center-left party to first place. It's good that we are all together and with the in this land. Polls suggest this is now his race to lose. And while that may amount to a switch in political parties, it would mark the first time the center-left SPD has won a federal election in nearly two decades, Scholz is arguably the natural successor to the departing Angela Merkel. Olaf Scholz styles himself as the candidate of experience and common-sense principles and respect. He's vaulted his party to the top by occupying that center ground in this race that has been held for the past 16 years by Angela Merkel herself. The new leader of the Christian Democrats, Amin Laschet, still hopes to pick up where Merkel left off himself. Laschet has stumbled during this campaign, however, and remains far less popular than Scholz. But his CDU party has made a late charge in the polls this week, helped in part by a last gasp return to the campaign trail by Angela Merkel herself in a bid to inject some life into the Conservative Party's campaign. Will it be enough to avoid a historic defeat for the Conservatives? No, I think Muti's time is over right now. People are thick and tired with politicians who don't deliver. Even Angela Merkel has not delivered on several subjects, uh, for example, uh, science or education. But also uh, climate change uh, was on her lips, but not really uh, on, on her agenda. So I think people are now eager for some sort of change. I, I would say the German way of change, not too much, not too 
fast, not too radical. This is Gabor Steingart, a longtime political correspondent and founder of the podcast company Media Pioneers. Not too radical may be exactly why Olaf Scholz finds himself in the lead. A sort of silent nod to change, but change in the steady pair of hands of another centrist. Beyond that, the question for Sunday becomes whether the two front-running parties will be able to cobble together a coalition with anyone but each other for once. Will it be the Greens, the one-time leaders of this race who have fallen back into third place in polling? And will the election percentage math work out to add a smaller third party to the coalition, like the pro-business Free Democrats or the left-leaning Left Party? Just ahead of Sunday's election, Germany's yearning for stability was highlighted this week by a crime that shocked the nation. A cashier at a gas station was shot and killed by a man who admitted to committing the crime because he had been told to wear his mask indoors. It marks the first murder in Germany stemming from the divisions that so many countries have felt over coronavirus regulations and shone a light on the more extremist undercurrent that still remains on the fringes of German society in this case a conspiracy group that has emerged since the pandemic and is known as the Querdenker. When it comes to the elections, the Querdenker have flirted with the far-right alternative for Germany, a party that has sought to capitalize on the anger about coronavirus regulations and shifted further to the right. The AFD party, as it's known, for the first time this year has included a call for Germany to leave the European Union, the only party to include that in its platform. That was a step too much for one member of the party we spoke to earlier this summer. Well, I was a member of the AFD for eight years. This is Lars Patrick Berg, who left the AFD over the summer and joined a splinter party, known as the Liberal Conservative Reformers. But unfortunately, as the party has grown, so the uh, emphasis on certain issues has grown also to the detriment of the party. And the, the road AFD is traveling means... Um, they will always have uh, core support from a disaffected minority, but will never, never have a chance of being part of any government because they're so marginalized. And uh, in my opinion, they probably will cease to be a major political party and become some sort of, um, of a protest movement, especially in East Germany or former East Germany. In other words, despite the bitter pandemic divides, the far-right AFD has failed to dominate the campaign this year, as it has in other election cycles of the past decade, though it does still expect to garner about 10% of the vote. Instead, if anything, it is the far-left that has become a key player ahead of this election. That's because questions have swirled over whether the left party, which is made up of erstwhile communists and disaffected social democrats, may have prospects to join a coalition government for the first time in its history. The left party has sought to make inequality and social housing in Germany a key issue of this campaign. When you ask me as a left politician, I would say Angela Merkel as a person is a nice person, could be a nice person, but her politics I'm not always agreeing with. This is Oslem Demirel, a European lawmaker and member of Germany's left party. And then we have to look on the domestic politics. So in that point, I can say that the inequality in Germany has been grown in the last years really high. 
and the gap is wider than before and this is a short problem so i would have wished more social politics for germany for such a strong economy and uh, i would have wished that we don't have so much people living in at the risk of poverty but this is the truth but the left party also has more worrying policies like a disavowal of the nato military alliance which are anathema to the center-left parties like the Social Democrats and Greens. Amin Laschet of the Christian Democrats has sought to strike fear into the hearts of Germans by suggesting a hard-left coalition would mark a dangerous shift. But the truth is that the left party would likely have to moderate many of its views to have any hope of joining a coalition government led by Olaf Scholz, who has been coy about whether he would even be open to talks with the left party. I think for the world leaders there are no surprises, because All the politicians, uh, and I know them all, which are now on the ballot, they are very stable and uh, peaceful characters. Uh, there is no, no hawkish politician in Germany right now. They are all in the middle of the spectrum. At the end of the day, then, the world can rest assured that while populism is the name of elections in so many countries, Germans are likely to remain more sensible. Thank you very much, Chris, and we look forward to see the results of the German elections. You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. On this week's Monochrome Culture, producer Holly Fisher headed down to the Dulwich Picture Gallery in South London, where a new exhibition of the American artist Helen Frankenthaler has just been unveiled. Frankenthaler is known for being one of the most important abstract artists of the 20th century. She constantly challenged herself and experimented with color, material and process. She was pivotal in the shift from abstract expressionism to color field and pushed the boundaries of her art throughout her six-decade-long career, up until her death in 2011. At the Dulwich Picture Gallery is a series of her woodcuts, spanning a 36-year period from the 70s, when she became a pioneer in printmaking, finding ways to manipulate colors and give new dimensions to her work. The exhibition, called Radical Beauty, shows her painstaking process. To find out more, Holly met the curator, Jane Findlay. Helen Frankenthaler Radical Beauty is the first UK retrospective of Helen Frankenthaler's woodcut prints. We have 36 prints here, all from New York, from the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation. And it really offers a, an insight into a lesser-known part of her career, um, where she really transformed the medium of printmaking, um, turning it on his head. Uh, in her hands, woodcut prints become painterly, spontaneous, fluid um, works of radical beauty. And when you pitched the idea of doing this exhibition here, did you know that you always wanted to make it about the process of how she made these? Because that's a lot to do with what, what we see on the walls here. You know, we've got all the different proofs and, you know, these amazing ones that have got notes written by her to her staff. Is that the angle that you always wanted to take? Um, I think it's actually something I just... Um, I said the more and more I read into her her work and the more the research I was doing actually it becomes a really fascinating story for me I wanted to kind of strike the balance between being able to understand the process behind her work but also not to take away the magic of the, of the prints themselves but I think it's important because as an artist she's very process driven and you see that in her painting I think it really plays out nicely in her in her printmaking and I really wanted to to be able to tell that part of her story and to help people understand her more broadly as an artist through her prints and I think we see a lot of that the way she 
asks questions, the way that she challenges her, the way she takes risks, all those things that, that are really in, integral to her, her process as an artist and you, that she's doing intuitively when she's making a painting, you can see that much more in, in the, in, through the story of the proofs in the print. So I felt it was important to, to tell, that, tell that story. And for you as the curator of this exhibition, I mean, obviously you, you knew about these works before you put the exhibition on, but seeing them all up close and studying them all and seeing, I mean, there's just so much texture to all of them, like the Gaussian techniques and seeing all those up close and the really intricate layers. What did you discover about these pieces of work that you didn't really know about before during this process? Well, I had a quite interesting experience because of the whole pandemic and not being able to actually go to New York and see these pieces. So I was working a lot on digital images. So to actually see the real things in real life when I finally got to was really incredible. And I think you can see just the depth of colour, but also just her attention to detail. There's often you get just a little fleck of colour and it you think that's not going to make a vision. When you start taking it away, it really transforms the work. So I learned a lot about that and also a lot about um, her use of edges often you find just a tiny little bit of colour down one edge, but it really transforms the work. So actually being up close with them and spending time with them, the more you look at them, the more you get from them. They're works that kind of, they reward that kind of attention. And so, yeah, absolutely, you have to come and see them in person to really kind of get them. I mean, some of them are physically 3D, they've got layers, but they, the longer you spend with them, the, the more they kind of jump out. It's kind of like putting a pair of 3D glasses on. <laughs> Frankenthal has this incredible way of making things feel really flat but also really spacey and spacious and I think I love that speciality in her work and you get that in her in her painting but she manages to do that in print as well which is phenomenal really and yeah so to be able to see them in person you can kind of get that that sense with them and they they really are captivating you kind of sometimes feel like you're falling into some of them because of the depth of that colour. You've got a bonus room on this exhibition. Um, perhaps you could tell us uh, what, what we can find in there. Sure. So, yes, we have a little coda to our exhibition. Um, we've got a special display. Um, we have a Monet water lily in conversation with one of Helen Frankenthaler's paintings, Feather. Uh, and it's an amazing conversation between two artists who both were masters of using colour, uh, who found inspiration in nature. And it's really interesting to see how, you know, something like abstract expressionism feels really like an iconic American art form. Actually, uh, there's European roots to that too. And to put the two in get- together, you can kind of see, see that really nicely for the first time. That was Jane Findlay there, the curator of the new exhibition Radical Beauty, speaking to Monaco's Holly Fisher earlier this week. And we're nearing the end of the show, but there's time for just one more highlight, and it comes from Food Neighborhoods. For the latest edition, the Tinha Lisbon Zoom Zoom Gastrobar share a favorite recipe. Hello, my name is Marlene Vieira. I'm the owner and the chef at Zunzun Gastrobar here in downtown of Lisbon. At Zunzun, we use Portuguese traditional quality ingredients. We also sell traditional foodstuff from Portuguese artisans. Today, we're going to talk about the special dish, the Portuguese flavors. Uh, the name of this recipe is a Filhos de Berbigão Abelho Pato. I create with my sous chef, Mario Cruz. And now I'm going to hand over to Mario and he's going to walk you through this recipe. 
So this recipe or this dish is based on the very traditional Portuguese clams with garlic and coriander. We start with the dough, which is a fritter. It's 300 grams of flour, 150 grams of cornstarch, 30 grams of white wine vinegar, and 495 grams of water. So you just mix it all and you let it rest for a little bit and you get those molds that comes in very different sizes and shapes and you warm it up in oil. The oil should not be too hot. It's not 180, so it should be around, I would say 150. And you just soak those in there, those molds in there, and then you put it on the batter and then you gently fry it for two, three minutes and then you unmold it. Then you have the cockle cream, which is 250 grams of potato, 25 grams of garlic, 350 grams of cockle broth, and 30 grams of coriander puree, and just a pinch of salt. So we open the clams the traditional way with garlic and coriander, a little bit of lemon juice, and we extract that juices from the clams and the cockles, and then we cook the potatoes in it, and then we make a puree. We blend everything, add the coriander puree, just let it sit and that's it. You put it on a pastry bag and you let it rest for a little bit until it's cold. Then you add the lemon gel, which gives the freshness of the dish. And it's 300 grams of water, 30 grams of lemon juice, 6.5 grams of agar-agar and one gram of shenton gum. And it's basically a texturized lemonade with no sugar. So we want the freshness of the lemon, a little bit of acidity, but not too much. It's not like pure lemon juice. It's just a subtleness on the dish. And then you assemble everything. You have the shells already made and you fill it up with the cream and then you finish with the cockles themselves and the lemon juice and a little bit of coriander sprouts and that's it. So this is better enjoyed in the summertime it's a cold starter so it's very refreshing very nice to enjoy in the summer months and it will remind you of eating clams by the beach well that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the curator the show is produced by san impi and presented by me fernando augusto pacheco join us again next week to hear some of the very best of our programs here on monaco 24 thanks for listening <laughs> <laughs>